Welcome Holistic Resistance community. Welcome to part two of the series. We discussed, me and Portia discussed a flight school visit we did with Lisa in this part two and several questions that came up. And I think they're great topics. I really think you all will enjoy this part of the series. Um, love to hear back from you all and reach out to us. You can find uh, our email at holisticresistance.com. Uh, so feel free to reach for our hearts and minds there and let them know that you listen to the, this podcast and whatever questions come up or connection you want to build with us, you can express that there, even just gratitude or anything else that may come up for you through this series. Hope you enjoy this, I think, really powerful interview. What the world needs now is more people, more people who specialize in doing Welcome to um, our part two of our podcast. My name is Aaron Johnson. I'm here with... Hello, everyone. My name is Portia B. Yeah, Portia B, co-founder of Holistic Resistance with me. Um, Portia was not able to be in our first podcast because she was otherwise occupied in some serious ways, but she's here with us today and it's so good. We also are so happy to have Lisa Littlebird. Um, I wanted to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you. I know some of us might know that, but just for the record, just know your story a little bit about you and then Tell us about flight school and some of the things that we're going to be discussing today on the podcast. Thank you so much. I just love being here with you. And I'm a community song leader. That's how we found each other, our mutual love of sharing songs in groups of people. And pre-coronavirus global pandemic, we were gathering with many people live in person. And uh, so we're in a real active time of re retooling and figuring out what it's going to look like in the coming years and days but um, there's still no question that the power of bringing hearts and voices together to sing is a very transformational and powerful method of cultivating connection empathy and well-being in ways that benefit our greater world. So I'm really passionate about this mission. And I personally had a large choir um, pre-COVID and uh, will love to resume one day, um, but we're taking a little season away from that. The good news is that for the last four years, well before the pandemic, I have been uh, hosting an online program which teaches the skills and both kind of knowledge and soft skills around being a song leader. Mm. And so it's a six week course that I created about four years ago. And I've had more than 200 grads from all over the world, many countries and most of the states in the US represented there of eager and beautiful people that are looking to step more into courageous leadership using song as a form of connection. And so through my last cohort, I call them, uh, of flight schoolers, we brought um, you both in to meet them through Zoom. And so it was a very fruitful conversation and I'm looking forward to using this time to digest more of it because it just felt like we were able to scratch the surface with you there. Yeah. Mm. Well said. And that's the intention. This podcast is for your students and others that may be 
wanted to witness this conversation, but really we want to take this time to make this for those that were a part of that workshop. That's where our main focus is. I hope other people benefit from it, but we want to make this for them. So we want to think about them in this. Um, I would love to maybe spend a little bit of moments just thinking about us coming into flight school. I mean, this is, this is a, a virtual experience. We had like, I think an hour to, to take on the impossible of, of race and, and connection. So to maximize our time, we invited people to ask questions. Um, and so I'm just curious, when you think about bringing two African heritage folks into your program, into your school, um, what were you holding? What were you tracking? What was like one of the goals that you had for your students to, to be in our experience and to be in a collaborative conversation on race? I would say just at the most fundamental level that we can't actually be in conversations with diverse communities unless we know and care for people <laughs> in diverse communities. Yeah. And so to uh, throw ropes and to really reach and to tend relationships with um, the like-hearted, like-minded people that we find in other bodies and other skin and really reach for each other as you say so frequently and beautifully it's a word that's now infiltrated my vocabulary and so i i had a hope that with this conversation would plant a seed uh, around the importance of reaching and what it is to make oneself deeply and truly welcoming mm. of new connection mm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Portia, because you know, we've been in this together um, as a duet. When you think about going to flight school, do you have a sense to share several of your, of your personal songs? What was that experience like for you entering into flight school and meeting her uh, recent students for the first time? Yeah, I think going back to flight school, um, I think first and foremost, just like getting to know Lisa more and just like having a lot of uh, appreciation for who you are, Lisa, as a person. Um, there's a place in which, in general, when we go to different locations, when we were meeting back in person, we would say like, you know, who's the person who we've de developed a relationship with that we have a connection with? Um, sometimes it can be known as organizers or just the person who we're looking to as that, to bridge that reach. And, um, so I think in a lot of ways for myself, because of the relationship and the reach that we have had and we are continuing to develop with one another, in a lot of ways, um, that in itself was, was a piece of coming into the space feeling more, more comfortable, feeling more um, not comfortable as in the sense of like, oh, guaranteed anything, but comfortable as in like, yeah, we're, we're here and we're able to reach for each other in the best way that we know how and, and, and that, in that manner. And in relation to flight school, I thought it was wonderful. You know, I thought it was really powerful, A, being an artist, being, um, you know, a poet, rapper, singer, myself. In a lot of ways, there's a way in which I like, I just, I feel like more and more I fall in love with, with the idea of, of changing the world through music and changing the world through community and music. Um, and so to be in a space and to know that that's a flight school, something that you built and, and crafted and said, hey, 
how do we bring this together in our folks in this world that um you know i've been blessed to encounter who have gone even gone through your programs and and reach for something really powerful about that so in a lot of ways for myself as a black woman to come into the space i think one of the things i was tracking was you know can they hear me in the ways that i'm sharing this music is it is it something where i feel like i can be heard and i can be seen and what does it feel like uh we had i think like two or three other people of color who was also on the call mm -hmm. so i also noticed a lot of my attention tracking them and tracking like hmm, how is this experience for them and like how can i um virtually let them know i'm holding them and i'm here with them and it was powerful that was the other piece i really appreciated is that prior to the call with a collective mixed group we took the time to reach for poc mixed heritage folks um at the, at the top so that was mm -hmm. really powerful i really appreciated being able to coordinate that mm -hmm. and i think that played a significant role in me also being able to be in space hold them and also be with the folks of white descent who are reaching for this mm -hmm. conversation as well yeah. yeah i think it's worth saying that as i didn't articulate really clearly for anybody who's new to flight school and might be listening is that my um, students have largely been very white uh, majority. So it's been, um, yeah, a conversation that has mostly felt like white allies wanting to grow and, um, and prioritize these reaches and relationships with our POC friends. So I liked how we set it up as well, inviting the POC identified former and current flight school students to hop on the call with you too early so that you could know them and track them more securely before the big call began. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for highlighting that and just kind of giving us a little more picture, especially for those that might not have been there or been a part of that experience. So in that hour, we had, we invited them to write questions that were on their mind that we may or may not get to. And so we picked one, two, three, four, five out of 30 uh, questions, actually 38 looks like here, um, questions to just kind of touch on. If we went through all the questions, it'd probably be a, a 20 hour podcast that we may get to at some point, but we can't do it at this moment. Um, but I, thought, I picked a handful of questions I thought would help us answer, but also extend the conversation, bring some thinking that would benefit hopefully a group, and to continue to ask better questions amongst white controlled spaces. Um, so, Portia, if you don't mind, can you read these questions? I realize how small the text is. Um, yeah, would you like to start at the very top? Yeah, we can start at the top as well. Great. So, the first question says living in an extremely white, polarized town towards the Black Lives Matter movement, where do I even begin? And particularly when we have literally only a handful of Black people in our community, mostly adopted children. Yeah, it's really powerful. Um, yeah. I almost, the reason I pulled this question in is because of that last little note, mostly adopted children. Um, that's where you want to start <laughs> in a sense of like, there's a way in which um, I remember we, we, we live in a very white controlled community and we had back in the day, we had this group called Fivacious 
they still exist, but we don't really sing much together anymore. Back when we were singing, we had a concert in our in our uh, in our city, and uh, mostly white community. We don't see a lot of black folks. And this couple, this um, I guess lesbian couple, say back then, but a queer couple came in to to women came in with a black child, and we were kind of confused. But first of all, we never you don't see that in that particular community. But they saw the advertisement of our concert, and they're like, we don't have black concerts here often. We got a black baby, we are going. We don't even believe in God, but they're black people <laughs> in this gospel concert, we're going. And it's a way in which, I know that didn't fix it, but it's a way in which I saw this effort of like, oh snap, there's an opportunity, there's a cultivation, there's awareness I don't have, there's a relationship I need to develop. And they talked to us after, and I actually wish that we had technology. This is like late 90s, early 2000s, almost 20 years ago this happened. But there's a way in which I think there's, there's children that have been adopted into white families is not necessarily wrong within itself. It's beautiful and I appreciate it on some level, but there's a there's a consciousness and a carefulness and a and a and a I call it the marathon build that I think is worthy to support and worthy to build a a support for. That's worthy. And another thing too is that there seems to be a trend. As I travel through a lot of white cities, I see a trend, I don't know if it's intentional or I don't know all the things that go into it, where I see a lot of African heritage children being adopted to white families in white communities and very little effort put into allowing them to be held or heard. They're almost forced to adapt, to code switch, to erase their identity. And for me, that feels very painful in the landscape of where do I begin? I think it's always children. I'm like, I'm just always, it's always young people in my opinion. Now, I know that they were talking more about like, there are a lot of things we can be doing, but I would say if there are children nearby that you can recognize, find ways to support the families and um, support those children and support um, a container that could hold their stories. Now that sounds vague and big, but there's a way that I can't emphasize how that just touched my heart in a very tender way of children that don't have a choice to to be in that environment. They're probably grateful to be there. They're probably I'm sure, having probably some deep gratitude because maybe where they were was harder, but there's a way in which you're almost kicking the trauma down the, down the road. There's more to be held around that. So I think that would be something that's important. And I'm, I'm that personal person to make it valuable also for those as white folks, it always begins in ourselves. Mm -hmm. like, even, even almost more so than the books you may read and the podcasts you may listen to, I'm on a podcast right now, and the films may watch, I dig all the above. But it really starts with a personal investigation of yourself. And, un, and, and preferably unedited experience of where you are and where your lineage and your family history has, has conditioned you. And a question that I oftentimes use to, to dust off what that internalized look is, is how do you track your capacity around this work? And I say that not lightly. I say that with some deep appreciation around some folks that I was in Oakland in a workshop and I said, Aaron, I can't, I can't stand white people that don't understand racism. I, I'm done with them. So I'm gonna skip white people. I'm going straight to people of color and black folks. I'm gonna be like, no, slow down, slow down. Don't skip your people. Be with them. Build capacity to be with folks that don't have the quite maybe read the books or quite understand what racism is in America today. Internalize, check your capacity for your fellow white folks. And, and practice ways of building community around that. So that's what I would first start with. And then I would also track those young children in your world. But that's what I would recommend at the, where did you begin? Mm -hmm. Make me say, begin with that. Yeah.
I, I appreciate that piece. And I think the thing that I would add to that is um, just, just also, and it, and it kind of goes back to what you talked about, about it starts with you. Mm-hmm. It's also noticing what, what is happening in both an embodiment mm-hmm. in that process and also what is happening mentally. Because mm-hmm. one thing I've really learned in doing this work with, with folks, um, with white folks in particular, is that a lot of the time it feels easier to go straight to the mind as opposed to going to the body and mm-hmm. noticing, oh, why did I reach? Why did I retract? Or what? What? What was it about me reaching in or noticing that? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's a big piece that I'm noticing is that you know I had a client that I was working with and their their child is not adopted. Um, they they actually have a heritage child that presents black in a in a white dominated space. But what was significant is they said. You know, Portia, I'm really, really excited about just like starting this book club with fellow white women and, and reaching for them. And like, I want to do that. And I, being someone who's been working with her, was clear that, that her book was her son. Her book was deepening in that relationship, was slowing that piece down. But I also know that this was someone who's working through this piece of like, what does it feel like to embody the hurts or the movement or the conversation of my son being a black man and me being a white woman? What that felt it felt easier to just say i'm gonna go read this book and that way i can say like that feels better and like we said we're not anti-book anti-podcast obviously but at the same time there's a place in which in slowing that piece down i think is really significant um and 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 i think there's a lot of uh i call it silent white shame that's happening where like white folks will like internally be beating themselves up, but they'll be like, yeah, I'm here. I'm in the work. It's good. I'm good. And you're like, but did you beat yourself? Yeah, I beat myself up about that. But you have to kind of dig. And I think to me, that's actually something that's going to, that's going to help you. That's going to make it harder for you to stay in this work about tracking your capacity. I think a cousin to tracking your capacity is track what you're saying to yourself, track, Mm -hmm. track what's, what you're noticing that you're speaking truth and what you believe is true in this process of doing this work mm. because this work is move through you mm-hmm. and it's just important to not shame yourself through the process yeah. hence why that's not a tool we use yeah beautiful mm. wow would you have to add any thoughts to hearing that question maybe where you begin in your journey um yeah just hitting thoughts before we move on to our next question from your school um, I'm really a response at the moment. So I feel really rich and um, yeah, I would just underscore what you said, Portia, that that um, unconscious shame is been definitely the most pervasive obstacle in my path as a white ally, because as soon as it happens, I want to stop. <laughs> and so unless I'm working with that as actually a primary thing I am not going to be in it for the marathon so thank you for noticing and speaking that so powerfully yeah thank you for sharing all, this. Mm. all right let's go to one more question or two more so the next question we have is how do we how how do we or I sleep with this horror? Yeah, and this is you know mm. 
I don't know how many weeks or days past George Floyd's murder, but sleep was something that was important to track of people. And I don't have any tips on like, take some melatonin, turn on some meditation music, go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, you can do that, it might work. But what, what I think about, it, I appreciate the question, that's why I have it here, is that um, I think white folks need to sleep less. And I'm down for sleep, but I feel like there should be some restlessness, because I feel like there are times where I was, when I first started doing this work, it was during the Obama era, and I, you know, put information that I'm doing work on racism, they're like, really, Aaron? I'm like, oh, this is post-racism. We got, we got a black president, calm down. I'm like, I'm serious, this is important. We got to do some race work. I'm out there working for free and volunteering my time. And it's like, just come, I need you here, come on. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I'll, and then they would show up. And so they were, they were sleeping well at night. And I was up at night. I was up, not sleeping well. And many folks were stressed. And it wasn't anything to do with Obama, but he signaled this idea of America's turn the corner. And for me, I was aware that there was a backlash coming because I live in feeling so all the Trump supporters and all the racist folks have been like sharpening their knives and strategizing for eight years. They've been building up and didn't have any clue what that would look like. But I do remember the night or the day that we had a, a mass shooting here in San Bernardino. Um, two folks went to a, a, a public building and killed, I don't know how many people they killed, but killed a lot of people, ended a big gunfight and Trump came out and said, I want to build a wall, or, you want to shut down the borders, some extreme thing he said. <clears throat> and I saw the country in our area, our, our white control space here in Southern California, get really excited about that. And, and I saw his success start to build almost from that day forward. I saw this momentum that started to go and it never stopped. And I saw people starting to lose more and more sleep. And so I found, and not in a way that I'm not supporting us caring for ourselves, but I found actually a comfort that we all had a hard time sleeping collectively. Uh, that as I, sh you know, screamed into the night, hoping people would hear about this important thing called racism that I thought was urgent, that I was going to do a hard connection. I wanted to, you know, you know, reach for them where they are and allow them to show up as they want to be. It wasn't really a popular concept. And unfortunately, uh, the day after the uh, Trump's election, um, my phone wouldn't stop ringing. And a lot, a lot of them were the same folks I had been begging. And they were like, I'm good. I'll get there. When I have time, I'm busy. I'm busy. I don't have time. I would, but I don't have time. They slept well. So in some ways, I feel like it's important that white folks don't sleep that well with this horror. I think it's time for us to have a little bit of stress sleep. And I, and I mean that more spiritually, energetically, than really shake your hearts up. The fact that your consciousness can tell you that this is not okay and that you're not restful is a good sign. I think if you are having a hard time sleeping, that's a good sign. That means your consciousness is awake and alive. If you are sleeping well in 2020, I mean, first of all, what drugs are you on? Some is knocking you out, or your consciousness is numb and it needs to be, it needs to be felt. So for me, I feel like it's a good sign. I, I, I don't want people to suffer. I, I, I tell you, sleep and water are some of my like medicines that I have, I have learned to respect over the last, say, two years. But I think that's a good sign. So that question to me gives me inspiration. So I'll pause there. But um, that's my, that's my, uh, it's my, it's my response to that question this moment. Mm. Mm. I think that's well said, Aaron. Um, as you were speaking, one of the things that was just moving through me was like, why does it, I don't know, this was kind of the feeling was like, why does it feel like it takes this level of extent to feel that comfort? Like of like, oh, we're in this together. 
after all of that like like what why do we have to go to that extreme to feel like okay yeah i feel i feel closer um you're like can we feel closer in a different way please i i'm not feeling this vibe um and i think the other thing when i think about how do you how do you now i want to say sleep or not sleep but i think it there's there's a depth around the conversation to me around the word that's sending out to me is horror it's like there's an identifying of like this is horrible <laughs> like there's a clarity in that and in that clarity I feel like there's a way in which by slowing down this conversation of this is horrible this is challenging it can either be something that buries you or fuel you right and so in a lot of ways I think of this question as like you can look at this as a as a question of like, oh, there's there's no hope. What do I do? Or you can look at this question as like, hmm, there's some real challenges here. What today in my position and where I lay in my life and where I can be, can I give? You know, I think I think sickness really helps slow that down. A sickness or an injury or something that slows you down from your normal pace to pace really helps you really start to look at the pieces of where you're putting your energy and how you're using it. Mm. And I think this conversation around, oh, where do, I, where do I spend my energy is another piece that I feel like is a baby question or a question next to this question is like, with what I have, how can I disrupt this narrative? How can I be a part of the change in this conversation and not just um, look at this as this is horror, there's nothing we can do, I, I, and I'm having a hard time sleeping with it. Um, so that to me just really stands out to me that I'm sitting with as well. Mm, thank you, Portia. Yeah. Lisa, you have anything you want to add to that answer, question, or topic you're feeling through your body and mind? I'm feeling a song that I've been singing that's, uh, that's called Don't Go Back to Sleep. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a Rumi poem. Right? It's about that. It's like keeping that important quality of choosing being awake even when it's less comfortable and um, but what I love about that song is it's a lullaby it's a lullaby about staying awake and that's kind of the paradox that I feel is called for here it's about we have to soothe ourselves otherwise we'll get overwhelmed and we'll get burned out but we also I just love how you always talk about putting on our marathon shoes. You know, it's like really noticing, like, I do have to rest. I do have to hydrate. I do have to self-care, but I don't have to anesthetize myself. I don't have to self-care right through the entire morning when I really could have gone to that book club or I really could have called my friend or I really, you know, really... Uh, prioritized important and meaningful activities in my life and it's a constant for me to keep that in focus mm -hmm. mm, thank you for sharing that i love to hear that lullaby so good at some yeah, point so good. <laughs> yeah i love Rumi too we got introduced to Rumi through uh cow earth when we learned how to earth build uh the founder of cow earth was a big Rumi. um I would say Fanny, I think he was more of a part of his, his spiritual practice. And he translated several of Rumi's um, poems mm -hmm. to several books. And that's how I got introduced to Rumi. So it was really powerful to be in, in the air and around earth domes and hear Ruby poetry and stories. Um, 
yeah, what amazing, what amazing poet. We feel, we feel good going to the next question. Yes, let's go on to the next one. All right. Um, so I've been trying, I've been trying to behave in a trustworthy manner and hoping that someone will find me. But the world's a big place and I don't know how to show that I'm trustworthy without being performative. It's very confusing. Mm. I like that question yeah. or that statement. Do you want to answer it first? Yeah, like one of the things that it that it brought up for me was just um, around. Um, I was speaking with someone recently who's a friend of mine, um, who's also a white or who is a white woman, and she named something that like was really powerful. She said, "You know, Portia, I don't, I don't in, in any way assume." that a black person is going to be able to just take me in or be able to reach for me right away. And I sat with that thought for a moment and, you know, cause this is a friend of mine, I have a connection to her. Um, but I thought to myself, like, there's a place in which I'm curious about, um, just like the middle ground space of like, I don't have to be performative, but I also don't have to assume you don't want to be in a relationship with me. I remember I was talking with someone and they said, you know, I, I said, well, what, what were your thoughts when you first met me and you first started to see me and connect with me? And they're like, well, I just, I just assumed that you wouldn't want to talk to me or you wouldn't want to connect with me. And I was like, I'm like such a person who wants to vibe and connect with multiple people. <laughs> like, so it was just hilarious because I realized that wow, like my positionality, the way I'm positioned, the way the stories have been told. I have a song actually that I wrote about stories, which represent, you know, this conversation of lies and things that aren't true in that context. But I just thought about the ways in which um, these stories stick. They stick with folks of like, I have to show up in this certain way. If I don't show up in this certain way, then, then I won't be trustworthy. I won't be seen. And to me, what I have to say to this conversation in particular is, in my opinion, as a Black woman, and I, I don't speak for all Black women, I purely speak for myself, and in my space, I feel like a lot of ways in which I feel connected to folks, or I feel connected to white folks and reaching for them, is in the authenticity, is in mm -hmm. the authenticity of like, and, and even, I, I think like, you know, I have so much respect for just the conversation of vulnerability, because I think to me, like, that, that's the bridge for me. That's the places where I feel most connected to folks when they're able to say, you know, hey, this is what's moving through me. I want to reach for you. And it's so funny, because the friend who was like, no, I felt like I couldn't talk to you, or you wouldn't want to talk to me. There's moments where we've been friends, and it still comes up. And she's like, yeah, I still kind of feel that. I'm like, yeah, but you know I love you. It's like, yeah, I know you love me. But it just feels good to talk about it. You know, sometimes it's just something that's in inside and you're like, oh, that wasn't even true. Portia was down to connect. She was down to reach the whole time. But because I have these stories that I'm moving through, um, that, that's been the thing that has held me back. So I think the thing that I would just slow down is this conversation of, is this a true statement? Or is this really some, some stories, some lies, some feelings that you've been told um, in the way that you reached? for black folks um, and what does it look like to actually give that person an opportunity to tell you how they feel in a relationship mm. to actually listen to the relationship to the voices of the black person or African heritage or POC person who you're trying to reach to 
and actually hear them. Hmm. Thank you. Question. Yeah. I'm trying to be behave in a trustworthy manner. I, I just like the phrasing of that because I think it speaks to the idea of like what one might define as their behaving as trustworthy and then what maybe a person of color could observe and, and feel as trustworthy. And I think for myself, it speaks to the world being a big place and I could totally feel that, um, feeling big. Uh, but particularly in this era of time of internet and, and technology, it's, it's much smaller than it was in, in 1998 or 1995 when we had to like mail things to people and call them and talk to them on landlines. Um, so there's a way in which the ripple ripples much differently in a digital era. So I think the world is a lot smaller. I'm gonna just name, I don't know this person's even on the internet or how old they are, their situation, but I think that as this question is actually speaking to the bigger group, um, the world's actually not that small. And I think about it because, you know, in this post-George Floyd era, I think of that police officer that put his knee on his neck and I don't think when he did it that he realized that he would impact the election of the United States. Because I could almost guarantee you that that event did not happen. That we would not have a vice president, African heritage woman, oh, she's mixed heritage, but identifies as black, vice president nominee. It was the pressure and the movement that was sparked from that action. I know it was also a buildup even before that happened that pushed us through. And it was a tiny of a pandemic. I understand there's some time in there, but there's a way in which if he would have just didn't do that, it would have had a different response. And so I say that because how small is it that one white police officer in the scenario of how this can explode, that the kind of the spark, the, the, the thing that tipped the scale, this particular moment um, changed the landscape of America. And multiple, that's just one element. There's many things that are now different because of that moment and, and it will continue to change. So I say it's- It changed the world. It is. And so for me, I think there's a way that is not that small. It's not that small in that way. I think it's, your actions matter. So the idea of you know being trustworthy, I think what I would slow down about that question is who's defining trustworthy? Are you defining being trustworthy? Is there a collective idea of trust? Is this worthy? I'm not saying the question is not problematic or anything like that. I'm just saying that that's a good question to ask. Am I the one that's only defining that? And then it goes on to say, the world's a big place. And I don't know how to show up as trustworthy without being performative. I think what's important about performative is it's one of those words and concepts that's like, what does it mean to be performative? For yourself does it mean that is it something that you know you're doing when you're doing it are you waiting for someone else to call you on being performative because i know that being performative being authentic is really an act of the heart it's not just the vocabulary words or how you present i know a lot of folks that have all the right words they can quote every book that they've read that's in my, as, as hip to read around social justice and their heart is really about performing that and less about doing the actual work. And going back to our earlier conversation about marathon shoes versus sprint shoes, we oftentimes see those folks that are performative not be able to make this a part of their everyday life for a lifetime. 
or about to implement this into their bones. I, I call it into your bones, emotionally, energetically. So for me, I feel like the performative piece is really about examining the heart. It's an invitation to say, what's going on inside me here? And I remember I was in a workshop and, I, and, and, and portion I asked a question and the person said, you know, I know I wouldn't be listening. I wouldn't hear you because I know a big part of my mind will be committed to trying to perform what a good white person should look like or sound like. So I wouldn't be listening to you well. And I love that response because I think she just nailed what happens so often that people are find out about racism and understand about what privilege of read a couple of books and oh snap, man. Like, Everybody's right. That's the guy with the burning cross. Me. Everybody has to work on this. I mean, we all have to. What you mean? Tell you a passive is a big deal. Like silence is violence. Like what? They're like they're kind of getting it all at once. They're kind of taking it all at once. And so the instinct is okay. So these are words I can use. This is how you're supposed to walk. Don't cross the street. I remember someone told me this, and I can't watch lynchings or murder of black folks on, on the internet. I can't watch it. And my partner was like, you're fragile. You're weak, right? And I was like, well, wait a minute. What's up? And she was like, I have trauma. My nervous system, my biological body can't handle watching that kind of horror because I had some trauma. And she named some trauma early in her life. And I thought, well, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That's real, right? That's not about race in this moment. It, it's attached to it. But let's let's acknowledge that trauma, and go. Well, what can you do? Because you don't you aren't required to you aren't you aren't required in order to be a good racist uh, anti-racist. You have to watch hours and hours and hours of horrible things to qualify, even if you have trauma, right? Because so the way in which someone might say, "Well, I don't feel safe to put my life on the line on the streets right now. I'm marching. What can I do?" There's a whole lot you can still do. So I will just track your own trauma story, your own experience, and absorb that performativeness might look that way for someone else. But where you are in your heart, you know your trauma story. You know what you can and can't do in your own uh, capacity. Yeah. And I really, really invite white folks, particularly not to go beyond their capacity around this work. Because that, to me, that's more dangerous than looking like you're not anti-racist and finding yourself in a much tougher situation. I know how many times in the workshop people come to us and go, Aaron, I loved your workshop. I hear that your mom's had a stroke and I hear that you're helping these young black men for free around this dynamic project. I'm here for you. I got your back. That's the last time I heard from them. Like, now I almost look at them and tell how passionate they are about. They're probably serious in that moment, but they're tracking. I got five kids at home. She, I got three jobs I'm working. I don't got time to have Aaron's back in that way. No more honest response would have been, Aaron, I, I really enjoyed your workshop. And with my capacity, I can give $5 a day. Just saying, that's, that's what they can do. Instead of promising the moon and then getting overwhelmed and shaming and disappearing. And I, it happens so much, it's not like I'm offended or confused by a track that, that sounded real great, but what is your capacity? What can you hold? Because that's a tough spot to be, because I have been in my life where I've been leaning on folks that, that performed, I got you back energy, and I needed some support, real like one o'clock in the morning support. Y'all know about that one o'clock in the morning support where you're, you're fighting for life, things are pretty intense, and they call and they sleep. They, they not only sleep, but like they ain't trying to talk to you. <laughs> like not even in the morning, they ain't getting back to you after that because they don't over their capacity. Mm. So that's something I would track in that performative mm. narrative of is it being performative? Mm. Track the heart, mm. fight for the heart. Whatever you can give, you don't care how small it is. If it's if it's if it's if it's your might, you know, biblical say, if it's your might, you can give. That's cool. That's your might. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about your neighbor who can give millions or whatever, don't worry about them, just give your might. And that, that to me is where I think we stay honest around yeah.
performative versus authentic experience. Yeah. I'll stop there because I could got me a little excited there, so I'm gonna breathe. Um, yeah, so I want to give you some space, Lisa, if you want to share anything on that or add to that before we move on to our other question. I just feel like you hit the. I just hit hit the mark. It's so important. And it's my work that I'm tracking that how other people see me is still a reflection of how I see myself. That if other people see me as doing a poor job at being anti-racist, but I deeply know that I'm doing my best, their jobs really won't bother me. And if I doubt myself, if I really am not sure I'm in integrity, other people's judgments are really going to stir me up. And yeah. so that's something that I miss. And this question also brought up another thing for me that um, Melanie Damore, another really highly respected song leader of African heritage, said to me, and that is, you know, that she sees so often all of these white choir leaders and song leaders out there just like holding up a poster i'm an ally you know come join me and she's like they might and they might not but she really believes that not every space does have to be a super diverse place you know like sometimes we just people naturally gravitate toward uh, something more homogeneous and that it's not necessarily the worst problem in the world if groups that identify in different ways are reaching for each other. She's like, focus your efforts on reaching to other choir leaders and groups that are already diverse, that are really doing it, that are working and make friends there and build bridges to other, other people doing that work and you know, it's, it's not about, I get a gold star for each black person that joins my choir, but that's the wrong goal. It's really like, what am I doing and tracking in myself and how am I doing the very best um, at reaching to others? So that's been a really important um, alignment for me to hear. Mm. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate hearing you name that Lisa, because I think there's like, so much there around this conversation of just like noticing what's happening in your own heart of like if you know you're doing the best that you can like if you are centered in that for yourself in this work i think that that's that's like standing on solid rocks that's standing on solid ground you know because there are going to be tests you know whatever the test may be whether that's of yourself what's happening internally or externally and I think to be able to look at yourself and say, look, I gave, like Aaron said, I gave my might, I gave what I had. And when it's all said and done, I was true to my capacity and I was true to that person and sharing where my capacity is, um, is really powerful and, and, and really important in that piece. So I really appreciate that share. Um, the other thing I wanted to just kind of add to what Aaron was saying, and, and it just the thought that started running through my mind was, the feeling or the phrase that came to mind for me was like performance is it's an illusion of closeness it's like it's it's this illusion of like i'm wanting to be close to you 
I don't think, and I'm not even going to go as far to say like, oh, it's, it's, it's um, manipulative or nothing, because I genuinely believe that there's people who I've met who have a performance energy, but they're genuinely trying to reach for me and they're genuinely trying to connect with me. And so in a lot of ways, I think there's a big piece around noticing that this is at the root of white supremacy is to, to perform perfectionism, even within something that is so imperfect, like community and reaching for people and moving through trauma stories and the dynamics of race and racism, right? Um, so to take literally that, that, that concept, it, it's, it's just not, it, it's almost like trying to, trying to fit a puzzle piece that has no space on that puzzle. And you're like, I'm going to make it fit. You're, then you start cutting it and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have cut that. <laughs> right. I think that's like perfectionism and performance. You're like, oh, she still doesn't trust me. Why does it feel that way? Right. Well, a lot of it is because the, the, the wrong the wrong way you came into the piece, right? That the, the wrong entrance into that conversation in general. So I think that that's really important to notice and to notice. And I think, I think white people really have a hard time admitting this and being with us. And that is that it's okay that you're gonna be imperfect in this world. It's okay that you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna cause harm. Yeah. That's gonna happen, period. But what does it look like to say, okay, now I've caused that harm how can I keep reaching for this person who mm. I genuinely care for, who I'm genuinely trying to reach for? And I think even, and I think this is where perfection becomes sly, is you're like, okay, I made that mistake, now I'm gonna make sure I don't make that mistake. And then you make another mistake and you're like, ah, oh, I didn't see that one coming. I'm not doing this, I'm hurting black people. You know, like whatever it is, then it's like, hey, how do we slow that piece down and remember that this is a, this is a marathon. Yeah. And as far as I know, from what I've seen, I don't see, uh, a one way that people run a marathon. Yeah. I see a variety of ways in which that happens. Mm. So I think that's an important piece to notice as well. Mm. Beautiful. All right. yes, 45 minutes into this podcast. Um, maybe just squeeze in one more question. Is that okay, with you, Lisa? Great. I'll do one more question before we land this ship. Um, do you want to do this one or this one? Well, we'll do 34. Okay. Um, how many times have I been on the cover of someone's brochure? It's not something I'm necessarily comfortable about calling out to people who do it, but it can be hurtful to be an optic. Yes. Man. I, I wanted to get to this question before we landed this podcast because it feels maybe maybe unclear for some people. Like, what are we talking about on brochures? Why does it matter from the front of a brochure? We're talking about is a person of color that's in a white controlled space. And when they join an organization or whatever it may be, because of the only the only person of color, only black person on the in the community, that person takes you know if it's a group picture, they they frame out and put the, make sure the black person's front and center in every brochure, every flyer, every article, or oftentimes multiple times here for optics. And optics is kind of what politicians use, and it's like not a good look to pass this at this time of day because people are you know whatever. So optics are really about performance. We'll just talk about that. Um, and I love that acknowledgement because this is so much more than just a brochure picture, but it's about what happened during um, post-George Floyd, Juneteenth cap and I only laugh because Juneteenth is a holiday I, I'm almost like reacquainting myself with. But in all the years that I've celebrated and been a part of Juneteenth, I've never heard a national organization like Google or us international 
or anyone acknowledged that Juneteenth existed in any kind of real so noticeable on, on just about every main social media yeah. platform. And we clicked yeah. on the day after George Floyd and America's Floyd, and it's like, happy Juneteenth, Juneteenth this and Juneteenth that. And that's a brochure picture. What the chunk? Google, mm. Twitter, all of them were doing it. And, mm. I, and our phone were blowing up with people like, holistic resistance, how can you help us write a, a equity statement? An equity statement, like maybe in the next two weeks, I already written it, but if I send it to you, you can edit it, and I can say that you were on it and you approved it, then I can put it on my website. I'm like, stop, mm -hmm. stop, mm -hmm. stop, Google, stop Twitter, stop small business. If you don't have an artist statement in early May or late May, and you see the whole America's is uprising, your top flat foot, that's okay. And so I always invite them to do, and this is advice I would give, Instead of putting the your only black person on front of your website eight different ways, instead of getting stock images of black folks in a certain amount to your website, leave your website as it is. And where you would put your equity statement, you could say, hey, public, we do not have an equity statement. We are working on what work we need to do. And maybe we're working with these organizations or these consultants, whoever we're working with, to help us examine. In 12 months, we may have something to write. We may have something to write in a 12 months of working through our stuff as an organization. Mm. And so I feel like the brochure is painful for a lot of reasons, but one of it is, is that quick, it's so much easier to change some pictures and some write some paragraphs on your website than actually do the marathon work, collecting a theme, the, the long lifetime investigation and work in your own heart, in your own mind, because when I get on the phone with a lot of these business owners and they say, all right, so Aaron, I, I realize that the equity statement and I want to get more black people in business. How do I get more black people in business? And you know what I'm about to ask them. I say, well, oh, great. Okay, you want more black people? What is your ideal black person? And usually it's like this quiet kind of, excuse me, I'm saying it one more time. I say, um, what is your ideal black person? And I get quiet, like, it's a trap. No, it's not a trap. But it's one of about 400 questions you probably should ask me. It's one of about 100 questions you probably should be asking about, oh snap, we have an ideal. We have a preference. We've been conditioned personally, collected as a business. We've marketed ourselves. We don't even realize that we have positioned ourselves for a certain type of education level, a certain type of articulation, a certain type of skin tone. We have an ideal. America has an ideal. And so if we know that, so to acknowledge and admit it, all of a sudden the equity statement is a lot different. A lot of people can't back up the equity statement. They write these extraordinary, amazing equity statements that mean nothing. And the last thing I'll say is I remember I was in this, I love the Back to Nature folks and Rewilders and all those folks. And I, I remember talking to them and saying, you know, what about first aid kits? You ever recommend you buy one from Walmart or one of those stores or wherever and you buy your kit and have band-aids and little stuff inside? And oh no, they're like, oh, oh poor Aaron, like, don't, don't use those, those kits are not, those are worthless. And they broke down all these powerful things you can give your own kit and they said, use it regularly. Get those band-aids out regularly. It said go in there, not just when you're in an emergency, but be very well aware of what's in your emergency kit on a regular basis. So when an emergency does hit, you aren't like, where are the band-aids? Where are the, where are the, where are the, you know it because you work with it often. And I think a lot of times people treat the equity statement so they look at once a year. They don't look at it often. They don't have a rhythm of understanding, checking in with where they are on their heart, their heart and their energy and they, what they've written on their webpage. Half the time when they write these things, ask them 12 months, what's on there? I don't know. What, what, do, we, what do we write? I don't know. Somebody look because they haven't read it. So this is like an emergency kit in some ways that you want to be regularly aware of where all the band-aids are, where all the band-aids are, where all the, the medicine is for your healing on a regular basis. 
and it's rarely put on that way. So for me, this brochure concept is a lot of the emotional labor that black folks do to make it appear that the place is safe for other black folks to be in. It's, it's just not that. Make it appear that white folks that are using their image, their likeness to perpetuate their own protection is painful. So I think that question felt poignant to name. I know we're over our time a little bit, but I want to name it here because it felt it's happening so much, it's worthy to be slowed down. So I'll pause there and get space for anyone else want to mm. um, share any thoughts as we get ready to close out our podcast. Mm. One of the thoughts and just listening to what you were sharing, Aaron, one of the thoughts that um that came to me is just tracking um, you know, oftentimes in our workshops we'll talk about the emotional calorie burn mm -hmm. that is put on uh people of color in the space and white dominated spaces in that um, conversation. And I thought to myself, like, you know, oftentimes we would reference that when we would be like in person and talking about relationships in person, but there's definitely a such thing as a, as a digital or a virtual emotional calorie burn. Mm -hmm. Like when you go on that equity statement or you look up that, that, that company or whatever it is. And you're like, I remember I was speaking to a, a young woman, um, who lived in a white dominated space. She was one, I think one, either one of like two or three or the only black woman in the space. And she said, you know, I used to love going to a particular store. I forgot what store it was. She said, I used to love going to this particular store, but then I noticed that, they, that, that they'd be taking pictures of me. And, and I, I, was confused, but I just, you know, whatever, I just kept doing my shopping. And then I recognized that just about every month they have a newsletter or some type of um, a version of a brochure that comes out and I'd be on the picture. And I'm like the only black woman within miles of this location. And I literally just stopped going because I was like, wow, I don't want to be a part of this, this, uh, this, uh, uh, this conversation that alludes to a false narrative mm -hmm. that there are many <laughs> black women that are in the space or black people that are in the space. And I thought to myself like, wow, like that's a calorie burn. Like yeah. they're not talking to you. They're not coming to you directly, but that's a calorie burn when you literally have to shift how you move in the world and where, what store you'll go to or not go to because there's this false narrative conversation of your identity that is constantly being put out into the world and people get to, you know, pick up this pamphlet and be like, oh, there's black women in the here, you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, that's not, that's actually not true. That's actually not real. So I think the emotional calorie burn of that is really present and noticing that. And I think oftentimes when we bring that into the conversation, then the, the instinct is to, you know, go and try to, you know, apologize. And I think, you know, Aaron, Aaron really talked about the, you know, the painful, the white painful apology um, of just like, that's even more calorie burn because now I have to like tell you that the harm has been caused on me, but now I have to try to like soothe you and your painful apology to me. And now I'm putting more calorie burn towards you. And so I think that's something to really just slow down and notice um, as well is emotional calorie burn and tracking um, I think called the painful, the painful white apology of like, 
yeah, that's even more how yeah. we burn. Instead yeah. of talking to that person or going to that, that person in which the harm has been caused, notice for yourself, like, hmm, what, what can I do better next time? Or how can I think about this differently? Or what in my equity statement am I missing? Mm -hmm. And how do I do the work and not put that work on a person of color? So that, mm. that, that was some of the thoughts that came to me and just, yeah, just adding to what you're saying. Thank you. Lisa, I'd love to give you some space as we get ready to close out. Any closing thoughts around this question, around our answers, or about anything that's moving to your heart as we're sharing on this topic? I'm just moved right now by just so many potent nuggets um, in your words and responses and feeling deep gratitude I noticed in that last question, as you were responding, I was tracking the, oh, I've done that, and the, oh, crap, and the shame, and then the managing the shame months, and then the desire to immediately apologize to you, and then <laughs> to track that, oh, wait, no, that's also putting it on them, and then having Portia say exactly what was going on for me. Um, so it was <laughs> beautifully oh revealing. So I will simply say, that, <laughs> um, I'm so grateful that we're friends and that we're creating relationship here together to, um, learn for me to learn and for me to grow and for, yeah, just I'm feeling really moved and full of gratitude for your willingness, your energetic output, and your patience with my learning and those of the many other white allies that are also reaching for you and you're doing such stewarding. So mm. I, um, yeah, I feel renewed each time we talk um, to craft a world that takes better care of my friends mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank mm. you for sharing that lisa yeah thank you so much lisa really appreciate you and i i think you know you talk about modeling and and thinking about um the ways in which you're like oh i noticed i did that this and that the other thought that came to me when you were sharing was like that was authenticity that was vulnerability that was well, what what reaching in a non-performative way felt like to me yeah um, so I just also want to echo that. Yeah, there's there's so much here. I think you, Lisa, Portia, and all the participants that sent us questions. Um, this is a labor of love for y'all. Um, we recorded these podcast series for you all primarily, and we know that it benefits many other people too, but mm -hmm. we appreciate you all's commitment to listening, to hearing, to doing your best. There's no way we're looking for perfection here. Mm -hmm. If anything, perfection is more of a problem than a support. What we're looking for is for us to learn. And I know we're going to look back at our work and go, oh, snap, we've learned so much since then. Our vocabulary, our thinking, our wisdom has moved. This is an organic living thing. But this is our best thoughts for us today with the capacity of what we have today. Yeah. And knowing that we are looking to grow as Black folks that are in this work and our own internalized material and how we're teaching, how we're leading. But we want to be very candid here and unedited here in this podcast series for your hearts, for your sacrifice, and many other people that are a part of this ever-growing community. And I hope that we gave you some value here. Um, and I know that we emptied our hearts here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to deepening uh, whatever it takes for us to build a marathon methodology mm -hmm. in the world. 
and uh, hope that you're a business owner or organizer leader that you can take some of these words to heart before you get 25 years into your organization and realize racism exists. But get it at the, at the exception. In our business consulting, we always ask, is racism something you had at the genesis of your organization or something you just popped into in the last couple of weeks or months? Because it matters. So if you're just starting out something here in this podcast, what a gift. Let's start centering uh, social justice and folks of color at the, at the beginning and birth of our organizations and movements that we get going. So with that, we'll pause it here. And we have one more of the series we're gonna try and land at some point, and they we're all pretty busy, but we got two in, so I feel confident we'll get a third one in. Uh, this is supposed to be a 30-minute podcast and a 60-minute, so it, it is what it is. So we'll leave it there. And I really look forward to our, our last part of the series, um, which we're gonna focus on what's next. What are we getting to next? What, what, what kind of trouble are we got cooking in the future that you may be a part of? So and maybe we'll get in a couple more questions from the workshop and that as well. All right. So we're done here. We're an hour and 10 seconds. So we'll, we'll stop there. Thank you, Lisa. I'm going to stop the recording here. I think I am.